the common theme across all Sheridex is regenerative agriculture and impact farming, right? So what we aim is to have a positive impact socially and environmentally around, the, uh, around what we do. Hey, podcast listener. Welcome to the Eco D2C podcast, where we pick apart the strategies and growth journeys behind today's most successful mission-driven businesses. Even if you feel alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right here in your earbuds, you are joined by other entrepreneurs and leaders seeking to grow their businesses and impact on the world. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, check out ecod2c.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Eco D2C podcast. I'm your host, Luke Tierney, and I'm here with Patrick Vasquez de Velasco, uh, calling in from Peru. How, how are you doing, Patrick? I'm doing great. Thank you, Luke. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. So Patrick is the CEO at Nampi Foods, based out of Peru, uh, and the COO of Shared X. Uh, Patrick is an expert in impact farming, consumer products, regenerative agriculture. He's a senior executive with a lot of international experience handling multicultural, multilingual teams with an extensive background in operations, supply chain, and much more. Patrick, really thrilled to have you here. I'd love to hear uh, a little bit about Nampi Foods and the uh, Sheridex, the umbrella, the mothership, so to speak, and the brands that are underneath its umbrella. But first, can you tell us something interesting about yourself that most people don't know? I grew up in Peru. I, I spent most of my, my life here, except for one year where I uh, lived in, in Belgium when I was uh, very, very young. And then at 28, I moved to Canada and I spent 14 years over there. So a little bit of uh, an international go and go back and, and forward uh, to, to a couple of continents. Something that most people don't know is I do have a carpentry. I am a carpentry aficionado, so I'm really bad at it, but I, I keep trying and I have a little workshop at my my home and I I do little things and, and I try to do little. What do you like to make? I made a table a couple of months ago. Well, a little more than a couple of months ago that, that was during the uh, pandemic. Um, I've done a few spoons and things like that. I, I try new things and new techniques to develop new skills, uh, see if I can uh, do, do things on my own. And so for those who are unfamiliar, can you tell us a little bit about Nampy Foods? So Nampi Foods comes from uh, Sheridex. Sheridex is an impact farming company. And as it matured in its, uh, in its history, and I say that with a little bit of, uh, uh, of laughter because it's only seven years old, Sheridex. We started separating a group of entities, legal entities and, and people that uh, were dedicated to specialty business. So Nampi Foods is a specialty foods and functional foods organization. And we have farms in Peru for coffee and cacao, a little bit of wood and some other things, but mostly coffee and cacao. And then we have brands in the U.S. like uh, One Village Coffee and uh, Co. We have a roastery in Philadelphia and we are serving most of the East Coast. What is the 
What is the shared mission across all of these brands underneath the ShareDex umbrella? Right. In ShareDex, we have a, a fresh uh, fruit division, a fresh uh, produce division, a specialty division, which is Nampi Foods. And then we have an agro-inputs division, which does biostimulants and biocontrol agents like trichoderma. Okay. So that the common theme across all ShareDex is regenerative agriculture and impact farming, right? So what we aim is to have a positive impact socially and environmentally around the, uh, around what we do. So can you tell me a little bit about that regenerative background? So there's the values for regenerative, but what specifically do the Sheridex farms do that makes them regenerative? I know there's a lot of different models to achieve that, that status. So regenerative is not a, a certification, so that sure. the rules are not perfectly clear, uh, like it would be for organic. But regenerative normally is thought about as a little more than organic. So for example, our farms, all of them, the fresh, uh, the fresh products and coffee and cacao, we all produce many, many, many tons of compost in each one of the farms to reintegrate the bad fruit, for example, into the land, right? So in coffee, we take the pulp and we compost it with uh, using some excrement from uh, surrounding farms. In Bananica, we use the banana that doesn't, uh, that in our fresh uh, fruit, we use the banana that doesn't make it to export, that is that is bad, and we compost it. We also use other parts of the uh, the banana palm tree as part of the, the composting. We use compost tea as well, which is a kind of a sub, uh, a derivative of uh, composting, where you put a little bit of compost in an oxygenated environment with uh, sugars and the microorganisms inside the compost explode in population. And you apply that directly into the, into the ground, into the soil. And, and that creates a much a better environment for, uh, for growing, right? So when we talk about regenerative agriculture, you have to think about the needs of the soil. It's about uh, making the soil richer. So that's, uh, that's the main thing that we do. But we, of course, uh, use trichodermas and other natural uh, or biological agents to, to preempt uh, preventive work against against diseases, invading funguses. That is uh, the core, I guess, of regenerative. Can you talk to me a little bit about that journey from being a farming company to a farming company that's also launching brands? What started that journey? Was that always the intention? Can you tell me just a little bit about the early days of the, the formulation of Nampi Foods? The vertical integration of uh, going from farm all the way to consumer comes from the need, the realization that both consumers and farmers are groups without a lot of power, right? So the, the supply chain, think about it like this. Go back 9,000 years ago. I'm a farmer. I farm for my family. And that's all I do. Of course, I'm going to put as much care as possible on those products that, that I produce, right? It's for my family. It's to feed my, my house. A few years go by, and now I'm a farmer, but you look that you're my body in this environment you make uh, leather products. I need leather products. You need food. We're going to do exchanges. But because we know each other, I'm going to still be putting a lot of care on my product and the same will you. Go 
further today. And me as a farmer sell to a micro gatherer that sells to a macro gatherer that sells to an exporter, sells to an importer, that sells to a distributor, sells to a grocery store, that sells to Look. I have absolutely no visibility of what are the needs of Look, how does Look look like that consumer is completely transparent to me and the other way around the same so i'm trying to squeeze the the highest level of productivity because that's the only way i get money and you're trying to get the cheapest price for your product because you don't care about my necessarily my well-being because you don't know me we don't know each other the vertical integration achieves a, a few things first of all achieves the possibility of contacting directly that consumer and that uh farmer and create an atmosphere of caring. So I care about the product I produce in quality for Luke. And Luke cares about the money that you put into the product because you you care about me as a person. So that's the number one. Number two, it is squeezes out of the system. Actors, links in the supply chain do not add value. Let's think about that micro gather. The only reason that that guy exists is because the farmer is not capable of contacting the macro the macro gatherer or the exporter or further along the supply chain. So we squeeze out those players that don't add value and we intervene the whole supply chain. Once we get all the way to the to to the other side, we can return those profits back to the farmer. And we do. We pay the highest prices. And in the case of coffee, for example, if we achieve better than originally planned prices, we pay back a bonus to the farmers. We have actually done that the last three years. Can you talk to me about what it was like launching in the U.S. market from a place like Peru? It's it's a little harder to attend farmers markets, for instance, if you're so many miles away. What what strategy did you guys did you choose to launch in the U.S. Um, and how did that go? So we knew that it was going to be a challenge, and that's why instead of launching directly, we acquire. So we we search for a good brand that share values. Uh, with us. And we landed in One Village Coffee, which was a small coffee roaster company in, in Philadelphia area, in Southern Pennsylvania. We ended acquiring their the brand and the factory and the management stayed with us for uh, for the longest time. Uh, actually, the, the original founder of the brand still works with us as a, in, in the sales department. I believe you met him, Steve uh, Hackman. Yes. He's the original founder and still works with us. And we are are still growing the brand and, and making it uh, better every day. But Nappy Foods has other product lines aside from those made by One Village Coffee, correct? Yes. We have a similar brand to One Village Coffee in Peru called Ashi, which is means ours in, in the Yanisha language, which is a language that is spoken around our coffee farms. And Ashi has coffee, specialty coffee and chocolate. So very similar to One Village. In the States, we have launched a second specialty brand called Co, which goes to a bit lower price segment, still in the specialty market, but a little lower, lower price segment. And we have launched a functional foods brand called Nampi, which has uh, some protein bars, uh, dry fruit, crunchy dry fruit snacks, and those same dry fruit snacks covered in chocolate, which are something from a different planet. And Nampi means uh, village 
in Ashaninka, which is the language around our cacao farm. The launch of other products and other brands from Nampi Foods was hinged pretty directly on this acquisition of One Village Coffee. Um, essentially, you, you guys acquired a, a brand here in the United States and then used that brand's presence to, to help as, as the entrance for the other products that you guys had already developed. Do, do I understand that correctly? We first acquired a brand and uh, we worked with them in the development of the other products, right? So Co was launched uh, from the States for the States market and uh, Nampi was a joint collaborative work between the Peruvian team and the US team investigating the market. Were, what were the niches that uh, adapted better for, for growth and were our brand was better suited to, to feel, right? We are an organic health conscious uh, brand and, and group of people. So we wanted to grow in segments that had those characteristics, of course. You've acquired a brand in the US, you researched the market, uh, launched some other products. What comes next once you have these assets? How do you scale? Around what year was this and what channels did you guys use at that time to, to really get um, get the word out and scale your sales? So One Village Coffee was acquired in 2018, not that far along. We found a company that was had some grocery experience, had attending coffee shops as well, doing some white label. And we decided to concentrate mostly on grocery. We needed to achieve some scale, some volume, and we thought that might uh, that might be the better way to do it. Sorry, you, you mean grocery retailers? Grocery retailers, yes. In the way we encountered COVID and that changed a little bit our plans because online grew so much. But now that COVID is over and whatnot, we are back to that original strategy and growing very rapidly. We have customers line up to, to, to start working with us and we have grown from, I want to say about 200 stores, maybe less in 2018 to right now around 600 stores. We have acquired a, a, a few very important customers and the brand is growing uh, really rapidly. Now now the, the, the flywheel is a little bit turning on its own. Customers are calling us. There is an interest on the brand and that is very exciting because it is a, the result of a lot of work by by a very dedicated team of people. Right? When you started that expansion, did you start in small specialty grocery or who did you target in the early days and how did that snowball? So we were lucky to have a really nice customer, which was uh, Whole Foods at the beginning. And that gives us kind of the grocery retail experience that we needed. Whole Foods has a kind of an independent per store purchasing when you're not a national brand. So the managers of each store were allowed to make uh, decisions on their assortment. It's almost an in-between thing. It's a large store, but it almost acts like it's a specialty store. So we have specialty stores, of course. Um, we target uh, that channel um, consistently, but in order to acquire new territories, we need to go after large grocery retail. That gives us the entrance to distributors like UNFI or Cahill. And once you are in UNFI or Cahill, you can start acquiring smaller customers like uh, independent stores and whatnot in that region. But the first thing that you need to do, or we find out when you need that we needed to do is to, to find that anchor uh, chain of stores 
that gives you enough volume in order to justify the distributor. What marketing channels have really worked for you guys? And are there any marketing channels that have really not worked, really underperformed? Interesting question. So when you say marketing channels, you're referring to sales channels or or the advertisement channels uh advertising channels comes to mind but really it could be it could be either it's it's a it's an intentionally broad question in this world of specialty coffee i have identified a few sales channels right you have your grocery stores then you have of course your specialty stores then you have your online well you have your retail online you have your own online and your retail online and finally you have your institutional and oreca right your hotels restaurants and catering we have identified a few sales channels we have our grocery stores your specialty stores you have your own online you have retail online like amazon and then finally you have uh, your institutional and Oreca. Think about that as uh, your big chains of hotels and your maybe the FBI, right? Uh, that agents drink free coffee inside their office, right? That must be a significant contract that somebody has. You have those uh, five channels. The one that has resulted the least profitable for us has been the, the Amazon adventure. And for some reason that has proven to be more difficult to crack than we expected. The grocery, of course, has been okay or very good. Uh, specialty stores have gone nicely. And institutionals, we haven't yet tried. Our own, our own online sells well as well. So retail has performed best, and then Amazon as an e-commerce channel has been the most frustrating. Yes, I don't know why it is, but uh, it, it ended being more expensive and more difficult to manage that we could ever thought. Uh, you, you think about it, everybody is in Amazon. I wonder if everybody's making money. Somebody is, but I, I, I found it very difficult. I have kind of frozen that channel, just selling the minimum until I get an specialist to look at it and, and try to figure out a strategy. What are some of the main inflection points that you've experienced along the way? What is a moment in which things you felt really started to click? About... Two years ago, two and a half years ago, we when when we decided to go after large grocery chains, we realized that arriving there on our own was extremely difficult. And we started talking to a broker company. At the beginning, they didn't accept us as customers. We were too small. And they said, hey, you need to prove to us that you can sell. So we concentrated on that. And after about a year, we, we spoke with them again. And they realized that we were able to grow the brand, that we had a, obviously an interesting product because we were growing. And they took us as a, up as a customer. And from there on, the partnership has been really nice. That's, a, that's kind of the inflection point that you were talking about. It's a, it, from there on, kind of the dynamic with the market has changed. And now after about a year and a half working with them, we find ourselves in that situation where people are interested in us, which is funny. It's, a, it's an interesting feeling. What is a pitfall other companies run into that you feel like you avoided? I don't know if I have avoided it completely, but this is a very expensive industry. And when I say very expensive, I mean it's cash expensive. Um, the cycles 
are very long, especially in the farming side. Coffee is harvested for four months a year, but you have to feed the plants <laughs> the whole year, right? And you have to have uh, workers and all that. So between the moment that you start putting inputs into the soil and you start doing uh, work in the land to the time you sell your coffee, you go over a year, right? So that's very, very long. The supermarket uh, in Peru are not as well regulated as in the States. So the cash cycles, the, the collection cycles are longer. There is collection cycles in the U.S. as well, right? So it's a cash-hungry system. You need to have really good backing. And most banks don't, don't find it uh, all that attractive to to finance uh, companies that are growing and because of that growth might fall, might be underperforming. So, I mean, evita negative for, for a few periods or whatnot, right? So it is it is tough to find a good financing. It's tough to, to, to have that whole cash cycle uh, well balanced. I, w- I would say that's uh, one of the most difficult parts. What is a common hurdle you think companies based in Latin America face when launching in the United States? And how did you guys overcome that uh, particular challenge, whichever one you choose? Two examples that come to mind. First one is the review cycles for grocery, for large grocery. And the second one is the slotting fees for large grocery. In markets like Peru, the review cycles are not as formal. There is review cycles, but you can open that door throughout the year if your product is good enough, if your contacts are good enough, if the buyer is in need because he lost the supplier that was not as reliable. So there is ways to open that that door. In the States, that door is so much harder to open, especially for a smaller company. And the second thing is the slotting fee. There is uh, pretty much no slotting fee in, in Peru in, in the States. That's a terrible expense. That's a huge investment that you have to do at the, at the beginning of a relationship with a grocery store. And that's something that has actually put us off many times, right? Some some customers are used to demanding two cases of product per store, per SKU. In an industry like uh, coffee, that is not something that you recover from in a couple months. That takes you a very long time to, to recover from. If that customer doesn't stay with you past a year, you have invested a lot of money for, for, for nothing. It's one of the most uh, significant investments where you have to do in the U.S. market, those slotting fees. What is a big challenge you face in the business right now? Not only the states, but the whole planet is in inflation. There's a number of bad things happening, one on pile of the other, and that generates uncertainty, right? So you have, you're coming out of COVID, which generated a, a wave of shifting in demand and and container supply and whatnot that created that that shipping uh, crisis then you have this whole uncertainty and crisis in europe with uh, ukraine which create has created a whole bunch of problems of course the incentive packages that were proposed uh, or were executed in the states last year created an inflationary period which I cross my fingers won't create a recessionary recessionary period coming next. There is, of course, in the midst of these and because of these changes in interest rates, there is a lot of uncertainty in the market. Coping with that uncertainty is 
absolutely uh, difficult, right? Uh, prices are going up, uh, costs are going up, packaging costs are going up, salaries are going up, and there is an excess of, of job offers for the amount of people that there is, right? In, in the state. So there is uh, a difficulty finding the right people to join your team right now. Um, I think we have a very attractive company to work for. It's, a, it's an impact company. It's a, it's a coffee. It's a passion of many people. So we, 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 I believe we have a very compelling offer, but the market is tough. What is the next big step in growth for your business? The next, um, the next big channel that you guys are, are tackling? So the next step in our business is um, to complete the supply chain. That's the way I, I, I frame it. In the coffee supply chain, for example, I have the farms, I have the, the wet benefit, but I don't have the dry, uh, the dry milk, for example. Then I have the exporter, the importer, I have the roaster, but I don't have anywhere to to serve my, my coffee and have a direct contact with a consumer. And that's something that uh, we, strive, uh, we strive for, right? So those are little areas. There's other little things that I, I want to do, but definitely the next step is about completing that supply chain, being able to have a full model. And then the following step is about replication of that model. What's a frustration that you've had with service providers, partners in your industry? The challenges, there's always challenges, right? Suppliers are not always uh, perfect. Well, everybody uh, makes mistakes and some because they're just not serious partners, right? So weeding out the, the good partners from the good partners has, uh, has been a challenge. The, the informality in, in some of the suppliers it's difficult to overcome, requires a lot of, well, reviewing their work. And that's not always something that that you have the time and the people to, to do, right? So it is, uh, that has been one of the most uh, important challenges that we have uh, encountered, uh, trying to, to have good, reliable uh, sources of, uh, of product. What's a good experience um, or ideally even a great experience that you've had with a provider or partner in, in your industry? Well, a uh, good example is our Rev, uh, Rev product supplier. Uh, these guys are, are an international company that set up shop in, in Peru. They set up shop here because fruit is grown here and, and their technology is about drying fruit, right? So they wanted to be close to the source. And they have proven to be the most amazing collaborative partnership that we have uh, we have had. Um, great, great work. They are uh, they have amazing technology and one of those uh, partners that you don't have to to really uh, be after all the time, right? We have another partner in Philadelphia, well, in Southern, close to Southern, that's our canning uh, for cold brew. And those guys are great as well. People of similar mindsets, uh, people that have uh, similar values, they want to grow their business in, in an honest way, let's say. And we have been sharing a good relationship uh, with those guys. So those, those are the two examples that come straight to mind. Is there any additional question I should be asking, but I haven't yet? 
I think the the model of of Nampi Foods is where where we should maybe uh, concentrate a little more. And I'm saying this because it is a different type of business. So I have basically four stages of the supply chain that I I'm trying to participate in: the farming, the import export process, the uh, um, roasting of coffee and the molding of chocolate, and then the serving or the shop, let's say, right? Each one of these uh, four areas can be replicated. So right now I have farms in Peru. I have a small joint venture with a farm in Zambia, in Africa. And the idea is that we will have that type of partnerships with farms all around the world where we can make sure that the coffee is traceable all the way to plant that came from. And there is as few intermediaries as possible between the farmer and the consumer, right? So that's the farming side. In the importing side, I want to replicate what we are creating in the US, which is still small, but I want to replicate that in Europe as soon as possible. In the roasting, that is even more localized. That, uh, so we have one in the East Coast, maybe one in the West Coast, one in, uh, in the middle of America, or one in Toronto, maybe something that allows us to reach to, to uh, a good group of customers in a local way, right? Uh, something in Europe, Asia, whatnot. Um, and then finally, the stores, which will be, at this point, I, I, I have it as, as flagship stores. And the, the store is so important to the model because it allows me to tell the model to customers, to imagine being able to visit the farms. Few people will be able to visit the farms, but many, many more people can experience the farms in kind of a virtual way through the stores. So imagine getting your, your coffee and scanning a code and seeing where that coffee came from in a very uh, immersed experience type of uh, way where I can maybe show a, a video of the actual farm, uh, the type of plants that uh, contribute to that coffee, uh, the people that were involved in that process. The store allows us to tell the story to a very, very large um, group of people in a very participate way, right? They are tasting the coffee, they are seeing where it came from and knowing about the story. And that is also replicated and it's replicated in all the models that exist for, for store management, right? From from ownership around the world to franchises to just brand uh, allowing the or licensing the brand. Each one of these parts of the supply chain is very, very important in the in the full scheme of Nampi Foods. Patrick, where can our listeners find you? So we have a, a website that is called nampifoods.com and you can go there and, and find us. Each one of our brands, Ashi and One Village Coffee uh, and Nampi, have their own websites as well. And eventually they will lead you to, to the Nampi Foods website, but you can find us in the web for sure. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today. I can't tell you how much we appreciate having you here. And to everybody listening, thanks for joining the Equity to C podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much, Luke. And thank you to everybody listening.
Hey, podcast listener. That's it for us this week. As always, it's a pleasure having you here. If you want to check out more episodes and learn more about us, visit ecod2c.com. See you next time.